chapter thirty one of ardath by marie corelli this librivox recording is in the public domain part three poet and angel o oh, golden hair o oh, gladness of an hour made flesh and blood who speaks of glory and the force of love and thou not near my maiden-minded dove with all the coyness all the beauty sheen of thy rapt face o fearless virgin queen a queen of peace art thou and on thy head the golden light of all thy hair is shed most nimbus-like and most suggestive too of youthful saints enshrined and garlanded our thoughts are free and mine have found at last their absolution and from out the past there seems to shine as twere a beacon-fire and all the land is lit with large desire of lambent glory all the quivering sea is big with waves that wait the morn's decree as i thy vassal wait thy beckoning smile athwart the splendours of my dreams of thee a lover's litanies eric mckay chapter thirty one fresh laurels it was a dismal march evening london lay swathed in a melancholy fog a fog too dense to be more than temporarily disturbed even by the sudden gusts of the bitter east wind rain fell steadily sometimes changing to sleet that drove in sharp showers on the slippery roads and pavements bewildering the tired horses and stirring up much irritation in the minds of those ill-fated foot-passengers whom business certainly not pleasure forced to encounter the inconveniences of the weather against one house in particular an old-fashioned irregular building situated in a somewhat out-of-the-way but picturesque part of kensington the cold wet blast blew with specially keen ferocity as though it were angered by the sounds within sounds that in truth rather resembled its own cross groaning curious short grunts and plaintive cries interspersed with an occasional pathetic long-drawn whine suggested dimly the idea that somebody was playing or trying to play on a refractory stringed instrument the well-worn composition known as rath's cavatina and in fact had the vexed wind been able to break through the wall and embody itself into a substantial being it would have discovered the producer of the half-fierce half-mournful noise in the person of the honourable frank villiers who with that amazingly serious ardour so often displayed by amateur lovers of music was persistently endeavouring to combat the difficulties of the violoncello he adored his big instrument the more unmanageable it became in his hands the more he loved it its grumbling complaints at his unskilful touch delighted him when he could succeed in awakening a peevish dull sob from its troubled depths he felt a positive thrill of almost professional triumph and he refused to be daunted in his efforts by the frequently barbaric clamour his off bowing wrung from the tortured strings he tried every sort of music easy and intricate and his happiest hours were those when with glass in eye and brow knitted in anxious scrutiny he could peer his way through the labyrinth of a sonata or fantasia much too complex for any one but a trained artist enjoying to the full the mental excitement of the discordant struggle and comfortably conscious that as his residence was detached no obtrusive neighbour could either warn him to desist or set up an opposition nuisance next door by constant practice on the distressingly over-popular piano 
one thing very much in his favour was that he never manifested any desire to perform in public no one had ever heard him play he pursued his favourite amusement in solitude and was amply satisfied if when questioned on the subject of music he could find an opportunity to say with a conscious modest air my instrument is the cello that was quite enough self-assertion for him and if any one ever urged him to display his talent he would elude the request with such charming grace and diffidence that many people imagined he must really be a great musical genius who only lacked the necessary insolence and aplomb to make that genius known the cello apart villiers was very generally recognised as a discerning dilettante in most matters artistic he was an excellent judge of literature painting and sculpture his house though small was a perfect model of taste and design and adornment he knew where to pick up choice bits of antique furniture dainty porcelain bronzes and wood carvings while in the acquisition of rare books he was justly considered a notable connoisseur his delicate and fastidious instincts were displayed in the very arrangement of his numerous volumes none were placed on such high shelves as to be out of hand reach all were within close touch and ready to command ranged in low carved oak cases or on revolving stands while a few particularly rare editions and first folios were shut in curious little side niches with locked glass doors somewhat resembling small shrines such as are used for the reception of sacred relics the apartment he called his den where he now sat practising the cavatina for about the two hundredth time was perhaps the most fascinating nook in the whole house inasmuch as it contained a little bit of everything arranged with that perfect attention to detail which makes each object small and great appear not only ornamental but positively necessary in one corner a quaint old jar overflowed with the brightness of fresh yellow daffodils in another a long tapering venetian vase held feathery clusters of african grass and fern here the medallion of a greek philosopher or roman emperor gleamed whitely against the sombrely painted wall there a rembrandt portrait flashed out from the semi-obscure background of some rich carefully disposed fold of drapery while a few admirable casts from the antique lit up the deeper shadows of the room such as the immortally youthful head of the apollo belvedere the wisely serene countenance of the palace athena that girt love and the cupid of praxiteles judging from his outward appearance only few would have given villiers credit for being the man of penetrative and almost classic refinement he really was he looked far more athletic than aesthetic broad-shouldered and deep-chested with a round blunt head firmly set on a full strong throat he had on the whole a somewhat obstinate and pugilistic air which totally belied his nature his features open and ruddy were without being handsome decidedly attractive the mouth was rather large yet good-tempered the eyes bright blue and sparklingly suggestive of a native inborn love of humour there was something fresh and piquant in the very expression of naive bewilderment with which he now adjusted his eyeglass a wholly unnecessary appendage and set himself strenuously to examine anew the chords of that extraordinary piece of music which others thought so easy and which he found so puzzling he could manage this simple melody fairly well but the chords they are the very devil he murmured plaintively staring at the score and hitching up his unruly instrument more securely against his knee perhaps the bow wants a little rosin this was one of his minor weaknesses he would never quite admit that false notes were his own fault they couldn't be you know he mildly argued addressing the obtrusive neck of the cello which had a curious stubborn way of poking itself into his chin 
and causing him to wonder how it got there surely the manner in which he held it had nothing to do with this awkward occurrence i'm not such a fool as not to understand how to find the right notes after all my practice there's something wrong with the strings or the bridge has gone awry or-and this was his last resource the bow wants more rosin thus he hugged himself in deliciously wilful ignorance of his own shortcomings and shut his ears to the whispered reproaches of musical conscience had he been married his wife would no doubt have lost no time in enlightening him she would have told him he was a wretched player that his scrapings on the cello were enough to drive one mad and sundry other assurances of the perfectly conjugal type of frankness but as it chanced he was a happy bachelor a free and independent man with more than sufficient means to gratify his particular tastes and whims he was partner in a steadily prosperous banking concern and had just enough to do to keep him pleasantly and profitably occupied asked why he did not marry he replied with blunt and almost brutal honesty that he had never yet met a woman whose conversation he could stand for more than an hour silly or clever he said they are all possessed of the same infinite tedium either they say nothing or they say everything they are always at the two extremes and announce themselves as dunces or blue stockings one wants the just medium the dainty commingling of simplicity and wisdom that shall yet be pure womanly and this is precisely the jewel far above rubies that one cannot find i have given up the search long ago and am entirely resigned to my lot i like women very well i may say very much as friends but to take one on chance as a comrade for life no thank you such was his fixed opinion and consequent rejection of matrimony and for the rest he studied art and literature and became an authority on both so much so that on one occasion he kept a goodly number of people away from visiting the royal academy exhibition he having voted it a disgrace to art english artists occupied the last grade in the whole school of painting he had said indignantly with that decisive manner of his which somehow or other carried conviction the very dutch surpassed them and instead of trying to raise their standard each year sees them grovelling in lower depths the academy is becoming a mere gallery of portraits painted to please the caprices of vain men and women at a thousand or two thousand guineas apiece ugly portraits too wooden portraits utterly uninteresting portraits of prosaic nobodies who cares to see number one hundred and fifty four mrs flummery in her presentation dress except mrs flummery's own particular friends or two eighty three miss smocks eldest daughter of professor a t smocks or five sixteen baines bryce esq who is baines bryce nobody ever heard of him before he may be a retired pork butcher for all any one knows portraits even of celebrities are a mistake take algernon charles swinburne for instance the man who when left to himself writes some of the grandest lines in the english language he had his portrait in the academy and everybody ran away from it it was such an unutterable hideous disappointment it was a positive libel of course swinburne has fine eyes and a still finer brow but instead of idealizing the poet in him the silly artist painted him as if he had no more intellectual distinction than a bill sticker english art pooh don't speak to me about it go to spain italy bavaria see what they can do and then say a miserere for the sins of the r a s thus he would talk and his criticisms carried weight with a tolerably large circle of influential and wealthy persons who when they called upon him and saw the perfection of his house and the rarity of his art collections came at once to the conclusion that it would be wise 
as well as advantageous to themselves to consult him before purchasing pictures books statues or china so that he occupied the powerful position of being able with a word to start an artist's reputation or depreciate it as he chose a distinction he had not desired and which was often a source of trouble to him because there were so few so very few whose work he felt he could conscientiously approve and encourage he was eminently good-natured and sympathetic he would not give pain to others without being infinitely more pained himself and yet for all his amiability there was a stubborn instinct in him which forbade him to promote by word or look the fatal nineteenth-century spread of mediocrity either a thing must be truly great and capable of being measured by the highest standards or for him it had no value this rule he carried out in all branches of art except his own cello playing that was not great that would never be great but it was his pet pastime he chose it in preference to the billiards betting and bar lounging that make up the amusements of the majority of the hopeful manhood of london and as has already been said he never inflicted it upon others he rubbed the rosin now thoughtfully up and down his bow and glanced at the quaint old clock an importation from nurnberg that ticked solemnly in one corner near the deep bay window across which the heavy olive-green plush curtains were drawn to shut out the penetrating chill of the wind it wanted ten minutes to nine he had given orders to his man-servant that he was on no account to be disturbed that evening no matter what visitors called afore him none were to be admitted he had made up his mind to have a long and energetic practice and he felt a secret satisfaction as he heard the steady patter of the rain outside the very weather favoured his desire for solitude no one was likely to venture forth on such a night still gravely rubbing his brow his eyes travelled from the clock in the corner to a photograph on the mantel-shelf the photograph of a man's face dark haughty beautiful yet repellent in its beauty and with a certain hard sternness in its outline the face of theos alwyn from this portrait his glance wandered to the table where amid a picturesque litter of books and papers lay a square simply bound volume with an ivory leaf-cutter thrust in it to mark the place where the reader left off and its title plainly lettered in gold at the back nur halma i wonder where he is he mused his thoughts naturally reverting to the author of the book he cannot know what all london knows or surely he would be back here like a shot it is six months ago now since i received his letter and that poem in manuscript from tiflis in armenia and not another line has he sent to tell me of his whereabouts curious fellow he is but by jove what a genius no wonder he has besieged fame and taken it by storm i don't remember any similar instance except that of byron in which such an unprecedented reputation was made so suddenly and in byron's case it was more the domestic scandal about him than his actual merit that made him the rage now the world knows literally nothing about alwyn's private life or character there's no woman in his history that i know of no vice he hasn't outraged the law upset morals flouted at decency or done anything that according to modern fashions ought to have made him famous no he has simply produced a perfect poem stately grand pure and pathetic and all of a sudden some secret spring in the human heart is touched some long-closed valve opened and lo and behold all intellectual society is raving about him his name is in everybody's mouth his book is in every one's hands i don't altogether like his being made the subject of a craze experience shows me it's a kind of thing that doesn't last 
in fact it can't last the reaction invariably sets in and the english public is of all publics the most insane in its periodical frenzies and the most capricious now it is all agog for a shilling sensational then it discusses itself hoarse over a one-sided theological novel made up out of theories long ago propounded and exhaustedly set forth by voltaire and others of his school anon it revels in the gross descriptions of shameless vice depicted in an accurately translated romance of the paris slums now it writes thousands of letters to a black man to sympathize with him because he has been called black could anything be more absurd it has even followed the departure of an elephant from the zoo in weeping crowds however i wish all the crazes to which it is subject were as harmless and wholesome as the one that has seized it for alwyn's book for if true poetry were brought to the front instead of being as it often is sneered at and kept in the background we should have a chance of regaining the lost divine art that wherever it has been worthily followed has proved the glory of the greatest nations and then we should not have to put up with such detestable inanities as are produced every day by persons calling themselves poets who are scarcely fit to write mottoes for dessert crackers and we might escape for good and all from the infliction of magazine verse which is emphatically a positive affront to the human intelligence ah me what wretched upholders we are of shakespeare's standard keats was our last splendour then there is an unfilled gap bridged in part by tennyson and now comes alwyn blazing abroad like a veritable meteor only i believe he will do more than merely flare across the heavens he promises to become a notable fixed star here he smiled somewhat pleased with his own skill in metaphor and having rubbed his brow enough he drew it lingeringly across the cello strings a long sweet shuddering sound rewarded him like the upward wave of a wind among high trees and he heard it with much gratification he would try the cavatina again now he decided and bringing his music-stand closer he settled himself in readiness to begin just then the nuremberg clock commenced striking the hour accompanying each stroke with a very soft and mellow little chime of bells that sent fairy-like echoes through the quiet room a bright flame started up from the glowing fire in the grate flinging ruddy flashes along the walls a rattling gust of rain dashed once at the windows the tuneful clock ceased and all was still villiers waited a moment then with heedful earnestness started the first bar of raff's oft-murdered composition when a knock at the door disturbed him and considerably ruffled his equanimity come in he called testily his man-servant appeared a half-pleased half-guilty look on his staid countenance please sir a gentleman called well you said i was out no sir leastways i thought you might be at home to him sir confound you exclaimed villiers petulantly throwing down his bow in disgust what business had you to think anything about it didn't i tell you i wasn't at home to anybody come come villiers said a mellow voice outside with a ripple of suppressed laughter in its tone don't be inhospitable i'm sure you are at home to me and passing by the servant who had once retired the speaker entered the apartment lifted his hat and smiled villiers sprang from his chair in delighted astonishment alwyn he cried 
and the two friends whose friendship dated from boyhood clasped each other's hands heartily and were for a moment both silent half ashamed of those affectionate emotions to which impulsive women may freely give vent but to whom men may not yield without being supposed to lose somewhat of the dignity of manhood by jove said villiers at last drawing a deep breath this is a surprise only a few minutes ago i was considering whether we should not have to note you down in the newspaper as one of the mysterious disappearances grown common of late where do you come from old fellow from paris just directly responded alwyn divesting himself of his overcoat and stepping outside the door to hang it on an evidently familiar nail in the passage and then re-entering but from baghdad in the first instance i visited that city sacred to fairy lore and from thence journeyed to damascus like one of our favourite merchants in the arabian nights then i went to beirut and alexandria from which latter place i took ship homeward stopping at delicious venice while on my way then you did the holy land i suppose queried villiers regarding him with sudden and growing inquisitiveness my dear fellow certainly not the holy land invested by touts and overrun by tourists would neither appeal to my imagination nor my sentiments and in its present state of vulgar abuse and unchristian sacrilege it is better left unseen by those who wish to revere its associations don't you think so he smiled as he put the question and drawing up an old-fashioned oak chair to the fire seated himself villiers meanwhile stared at him in unmitigated amazement what had come to the fellow he wondered how had he managed to invest himself with such an overpowering distinction of look and grace of bearing he had always been a handsome man yes but there was certainly something more than handsome about him now there was a singular magnetism in the flash of the fine soft eyes a marvellous sweetness in the firm lines of the perfect mouth a royal grandeur and freedom in the very poise of his well-knit figure and noble head that certainly had not before been apparent in him moreover that was an odd remark for him to make about wishing to revere the associations of the holy land very odd considering his formerly sceptical theories rousing himself from his momentary bewilderment villiers remembered the duties of hospitality have you dined alwyn he asked with his hand on the bell excellently was the response accompanied by a bright upward glance i went to that big hotel opposite the park had dinner left the surplus of my luggage in charge selected one small portmanteau took a hansom and came on here resolved to pass one night at least under your roof one night interrupted villiers you are very much mistaken if you think you are going to get off so easily you will not escape from me for a month i tell you consider yourself a prisoner good send for the luggage to-morrow laughed alwyn flinging himself back in his chair in an attitude of lazy comfort i give in i resign myself to my fate but what of the cello and he pointed to the bulgy-looking casket of sweet sleeping sounds sleeping generally so far as villiers was concerned but ready to wake at the first touch of the master hand villiers glanced at it with a comical air of admiring vanquishment oh never mind the cello he said indifferently that can bear being put by for a while it's a most curious instrument sometimes it seems to sound better when i have let it rest a while just like a human thing you know 
it gets occasionally tired of me i suppose but i say why didn't you come straight here bag baggage and all what business had you to stop on the way at any hotel do you call that friendship alwyn laughed at his mock injured tone i apologize villiers i really do but i felt it would be scarcely civil of me to come down upon you for bed board and lodging without giving you previous notice and at the same time i wanted to take you by surprise as i did besides i wasn't sure whether i should find you in town of course i knew i should be welcome if you were rather assented villiers shortly and with affected gruffness if you were sure of nothing else in this world you might be sure of that he paused squared his shoulders and put up his eyeglass through which he scanned his friend with such a persistently scrutinizing air that alwyn was somewhat amused what are you staring at me for he demanded gaily am i so bronzed well you are rather brown admitted villiers slowly but that doesn't surprise me the fact is it's very odd and i can't altogether explain it but somehow i find you changed positively very much changed too changed in appearance do you mean how look here upon this picture and on this quoted villiers dramatically taking down alwyn's portrait from the mantel-shelf and mentally comparing it with the smiling original no two heads were ever more alike and yet more distinctly unlike here and he tapped the photograph you have the appearance of a modern timon or orestes but now as you actually are i see more resemblance in your face to that and he pointed to the serene and splendid bust of the apollo than to this counterfeit presentment of your former self alwyn flushed but not so much at the implied compliment as at the words former self but quickly shaking off his embarrassment he glanced round at the apollo and lifted his eyebrows incredulously then all i can say my dear boy is that that eyeglass of yours represents objects to your own view in a classic light which is entirely deceptive for i fail to trace the faintest similitude between my own features and that of the sun-born lord of laurels oh you may not trace it said villiers calmly but nevertheless others will some people say that no man knows what he really is like and that even his own reflection in the glass deceives him besides it is not so much the actual contour for the features that impresses one it is the look you have the look of the greek god the look of conscious power and inward happiness he spoke seriously thoughtfully surveying his friend with a vague feeling of admiration akin to reverence alwyn stooped and stirred the fire into a brighter blaze well so far my looks do not belie me he said gently after a pause i am conscious of both power and joy why naturally and villiers laid one hand affectionately on his shoulder of course the face of the whole world has changed for you now that you have won such tremendous fame fame alwyn sprang upright so suddenly that villiers was quite startled fame who says i am famous and his eyes flashed forth an amazed almost haughty resentment his friends stared then laughed outright who says it why all london says it do you mean to tell me alwyn that you've not seen the english papers and magazines containing all the critical reviews and discussions on your poem of norhalma alwyn winced at the title what a host of strange memories it recalled i have seen nothing he replied hurriedly i have made it a point to look at no papers lest i should chance on my own name coupled as it has been before with the languid abuse common to criticism in this country not that i should have cared 
now and a slight smile played on his lips in fact i have ceased to care moreover as i know modern success in literature is chiefly commanded by the praise of a clique or the services of log rollers and as i am not included in any of the journalistic rings i have neither hoped nor expected any particular favour or recognition from the public then said villiers excitedly seizing him by the hand let me be the first to congratulate you it is often the way that when we no longer especially crave a thing that thing is suddenly thrust upon us whether we will or no and so it has happened in your case learn therefore my dear fellow that your poem which you sent to me from tiflis and which was published under my supervision about four months ago has already run through six editions and is now in its seventh seven editions of a poem a poem mark you in four months isn't bad moreover the demand continues and the long and the short of it is that your name is actually at the present moment the most celebrated in all london in fact you are very generally acknowledged the greatest poet of the day and continued villiers wringing his friend's hand with uncommon fervour i say god bless you old boy if ever a man deserves success you do nurhama is magnificent such a genius as yours will raise the literature of the age to a higher standard than it has known since the death of adonais footnote keats you can't imagine how sincerely i rejoice at your triumph alwyn was silent he returned his companion's cordial hand pressure almost unconsciously he stood leaning against the mantelpiece and looking gravely down into the fire his first emotion was one of repugnance of rejection what did he need of this will-o'-the-wisp called fame dancing again across his path this transitory torch of world approval fame in london what was it what could it be compared to the brilliancy of the fame he had once enjoyed as laureate of alciras as this thought passed across his mind he gave a quick interrogative glance at villiers who was observing him with much wondering intentness and his handsome face lighted with sudden laughter dear old boy he said with a very tender inflection in his mellow mirthful voice you are the best of good fellows and i thank you heartily for your news which if it seems satisfactory to you ought certainly to be satisfactory to me but tell me frankly if i am as famous as you say how did i become so how was it worked up worked up villiers was completely taken back by the oddity of this question come continued alwyn persuasively his fine eyes sparkling with mischievous good-humour you can't make me believe that all england took to me suddenly of its own accord it is not so romantic so poetry-loving so independent or so generous as that how was my celebrity first started if my book which has all the disadvantage of being a poem instead of a novel has so suddenly leaped into high favour and renown why then some leading critic or other must have thought that i myself was dead the whimsical merriment of his face seemed to reflect itself on that of billiards you're too quick-witted alwyn positively you are he remonstrated with a frankly humorous smile but as it happens you're perfectly right not one critic but three three of our most influential men too thought you were dead and that norhama was a posthumous work of perished genius End of chapter thirty one